Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer in Tel Aviv. As we record, Benjamin Netanyahu is in the very final stages of assembling his new government coalition and its swearing-in is on the horizon. Among the worries surrounding the coalition agreements that Netanyahu is formalizing with his partners, all of them orthodox or ultra-orthodox parties, is the effect that they will have on Israeli women. Here to talk about the dangers of a radical regression when it comes to women's rights and gender equality under this new government is Professor Yofi Tirosh, Vice Dean of the Faculty of Law at Tel Aviv University, an anti-discrimination law expert and a leading award-winning human rights activist. She is a leading voice on the issue of gender equality. Dr. Tirosh, welcome to Haaretz Weekly. Thank you, Alison. It's great to be here. Along with racism, homophobia, religious fundamentalism, disregard for democracy, all of these words being used to characterize the dangers and fears regarding this coalition in formation, which we presume is going to be made up of the Likud, religious Zionism, Shas, and United Torah Judaism, basically the Likud plus all Orthodox religious parties, the phrase toxic masculinity keeps coming up. Why is that? Why do women feel particularly threatened by this incoming coalition? I think before we even talk about masculine versus feminine, we can go back to the basics and ask about men and women in the government. What we have today is uh, stagnation in the number of women in the Knesset, in fact, uh, regression. So we have less than a quarter of Knesset members who are female, And in the coalition, the numbers are even uh, more staggering. There are 15% women. When you look at why, there are two parties out of the four parties making up the coalition, which categorically, overtly say no women will be elected in our uh, parties, the ultra-Orthodox parties. And in the Likud and in the religious Zionism, uh, women are few and far between. This has not just symbolic effects about uh, what it means for the entire Israeli society. So a friend of mine a few weeks ago uh, complained to the organizers of a medical conference that there are not enough women speakers. The answers that she got from the organizer was, There are more women in the conference than there are in the government. What do you want? And I think this really beautifully illustrates the, the, the symbolic effects. But then, historically, unfortunately, we know that everything that has to do with quote-unquote uh, women's issues in legislation has been led by female Knesset members. When you have such scant number of female Knesset members and female legislators, uh, these issues are going to be uh, few and far between. When you talk about uh, toxic masculinity, we have major forces in the coalition who not only feel that women's issues and gender equality issues are not high on their to-do list, but actually feel that we, the Israeli culture should be redesigned such that women step back from leadership positions, 
whether it's in politics, in science, in uh, economics, in the media, and should uh, resort to their true nature, to their domestic roles. What do you see as the differences between the traditional ultra-Orthodox parties and the religious Zionism party when it comes to gender? Is this new party more dangerous when it comes to women's rights? That's a great question. First, I want to say that there are many religious Zionists in Israel today who are ashamed by being associated with this category uh, that the, the party has appropriated to itself. Because, they've claimed the brand. Right, they've claimed the brand, but the values of the brand are not the values of traditional uh, religious uh, Zionism, which, to put it very simply, I think the dividing line today in Israel is between people who are committed to core democratic values to a society that has been thinking about itself not as a zero-sum game, but as a collective uh, mission that would enable everybody to maintain their basic uh, rights and their ability to participate in the game, and those who are not, those who are thinking in terms of tribalism, in terms of winner-takes-it-all, in terms of Darwinian uh, market uh, structure, etc., etc. So... Yes, there is a difference between Haredi parties and the religious Zionism. At least until recently, Haredi parties worried about resources and autonomy for their own communities. It's been changing due to the what we call religious uh, uh, Zionists, or in, in Hebrew, Chardalim, the people who are between Haredi and uh, Dati Leumi. And their agenda is much wider. It's to reshape the public sphere, to reshape how you and I and every other Israeli uh, live. So just to give you a, you know, a mundane, a symbolic uh, example, uh, Avi Maoz, colleagues, Smotrich and uh, Rotman have been sitting in Knesset committees obstructing initiatives in the last government to uh, apply the Istanbul Convention uh, that is meant to prevent domestic violence, uh, sitting there saying that legislative proposals against economic violence within the family, a situation that is well recognized as, as terrorizing uh, women, uh, saying if we legislate this, it would ruin the place of the man in the family as the patriarch. Now, Back in the last government, when uh, feminist observers and, and advocates saw this, they said, okay, we'll wait. But now the wait is going to be extremely long, and we're going to see regression. So the imperialism, the ideological imperialism that I'm talking about, uh, is represented in the coalitional uh, demands uh, from the Likud party by its very greedy partners. They're talking, for example about expanding the authorities given to rabbinical courts. Rabbinical courts in Israel, which is hardly fathomable for me, you know, when I try to look at, at Israel from the outside, are tribunals where there is not a single female judge. It's considered against religious orthodoxy, which is the governing interpretation of what is Judaism in Israel. And they are uh, judging according to a system of rules that has been shared by men across many, many centuries 
Today, Israeli women are subjected to the system of rules and courts when it comes to marriage and divorce. But they want to expand its authority to civil law, to torts, to property, to contracts. What would that mean for, for women who have to go and litigate about a breach of contract in, in front of men who often have very little understanding of uh, equal citizenship? How would we uh, look? And that kind of activist agenda is very different from what we've seen from the Haredi parties. So to hone in on the issue that you've been particularly known for, you know, in the forefront of, and that is gender segregation. You are a leading activist against gender segregation in the public sphere. And some of the coalition agreements, the proposed coalition agreements, demands from the religious parties involve this issue centrally. For those who aren't familiar with the background of the gender separation debate in Israel, can you briefly lay out for us the the history of the conflict over gender segregation and where the key frictions lie and kind of give us a, a status quo before we talk about what kind of changes they want to make? Sure. So Israel has been changing its face in the last decade or so, uh, mainly because the Haredi community has been undergoing internal changes. It's been opening up to the general society, for example, by smartphones who uh, give uh, access to social networks, media venues, etc., etc. So more and more Haredim want to exit the gates of the community and work and study. Simultaneously to these internal trends, the government has been very nervous about the underemployment of Haredi men. And it has uh, tried to apply all sorts of policies to encourage them to give up on the waiver that they have from the military service and from being employed for a wage and uh, not living on a welfare and studying in the uh, yeshiva full time. And in order to do that, it kind of axiomatically assumed that the way to draw ultra-Orthodox into civic activities has to go through sex segregation. So we've now had for the past decade government subsidies for public uh, universities and colleges that offer programs for the ultra-Orthodox where the campuses are segregated, women are in one campus and men are in another, or they are segregated strictly by hours. Female professors are not allowed to teach the male students. The subject programs that are offered to female students are different. They're pink-collar uh, uh, jobs, and, and, and for men, they're different. And that has caused a ripple effect that is incremental, and now we see it raising its head. So although the government has presented it at the time, As a, as a necessary, temporary, and very kind of contained uh, accommodation that would then lead to assimilation, what has happened and what now is going to, to happen much more rapidly and dramatically is that from the first degree, the uh, segregated programs expanded to the second degree. From programs for Haredi only, they expanded to programs for the Tilumi, for the religious Zionists. And then they migrated to professional training by the civil service who want to encourage the, the ultra-Orthodox. And now we see a lot of rhetoric and some practices 
in private companies that say, okay, we have to offer women only or men only teams in our high-tech company or otherwise we cannot employ uh, the Haredim. The classic slippery slope. Exactly. Now, the coalitional agreements, even in their... very moderate version as Netanyahu presents it. So the Haredim put one demand on the table and Netanyahu returns a, a thinner uh, demand. Even in the Netanyahu version, they are uh, going to change the face of Israeli society because uh, what is on the table now is business autonomy for business owners to... be free to offer their services or products according to their religious belief. So American listeners would be familiar with the Masterpiece Cake Shop uh, case in which a Catholic cake baker refused to uh, sell a wedding cake to a gay couple. According to the legislation, the suggestions on the table now, business owners in Israel will be able to refuse to, service to gay people they would be able to refuse service to Arabs you know my religion prevents me for selling you uh, gas to your car and they will be able to introduce uh, separate hours or separate lines for men and women or to say women with uh, exposed shoulders cannot enter the the store uh, these are phenomena that are there we see them you know the, the, but but they have managed to be contained through a lot of litigation and a lot of public work uh, being being minimal and that's going to completely change uh, Israeli society as you just said a lot of these issues end up in court and last week on the podcast we had a Excellent episode um, with our guest, uh, uh, Professor Yaniv Roznai, who was ringing the alarm bell um, regarding the dangers of this proposed override clause, which would basically strengthen the power of the government, of the you know, sitting political leaders and the legislature over the judiciary. especially in this uh, gender segregation issue, but in general, in many issues uh, regarding women, how much damage do you think the passage of an override clause will do to women's rights in Israel? I think the effects will be dire of the over- override clause. Israeli women have relied on uh, the High Court of Justice and on lawyer- lower courts to uh, maintain their rights. We have a pretty good law book. So if the Knesset has been pretty progressive, but as often happens, what's on the law books needs uh, enforcement. You know, it's not even uh, about legislating the clause. It's about saying that you might. So we already, I think, have a chilling effect that would make the court extremely cautious in intervening on all kinds of issues relating to uh, the protection of women. If, if I look at the history, it's the Supreme Court that said that labor unions cannot discriminate their female uh, members. It's the Supreme Court that said that the military has to treat women according to their skills and not according to their uh, sex and opened up many opportunities to them. You know, parenthetically, this is an ambivalent issue for me as a feminist to think about women in, in combat roles, but it cannot be denied that uh, 
It's, it's a major venue for mobilization and for meaning for, for young Israeli uh, women. We're going to witness a government that uh, flushes down the toilet all the uh, compromises regarding the Western Wall and how reformed Jews or the women of the wall have been permitted to uh, pray there. You know, as opposed to what is argued against the court these days, it has been extremely respectful of the government delegating the issue again and again to, to committees. And now there will be no court to even do that. Nonetheless, the override clause would basically emasculate, to use a phrase, emasculate the court of uh, any of its power to do this uh, judicially. When you lay out the way that these parties uh, are demanding that Netanyahu agree to this agenda, which will transform the face of Israeli society and affect the lives of women on a day-to-day basis, do you think that Israelis who voted for this government might push back when it comes to these gender issues? Could this possibly be something that defies the traditional right, left, or BB, anti-BB camps? Or does our divisive political reality make this impossible? I think that we see uh, panic by Likud uh, voters about many issues. Many Likud voters do not want the override clause. Many Likud voters do not want... M.K. Maoz as in charge of their children's uh, afternoon uh, education, extracurricular education. But I think there is this uh, paralysis by the divisiveness of Israel. So the fact that this is a, a tragic situation, the fact that somebody who is regarded a lefty says, you know, come with me and let's fight for, uh, you know, women's possibility to uh, take the exams to become a rabbi, okay? And by the way, without those exams, one of the suggestions on the table, one of the demands that is going to be uh, probably applied is that people with uh, a rabbinical degree will be considered as having a bachelor's degree and they would be able to compete in uh, you know civil service uh, jobs so that's categorically blocks many many jobs to to women or give them disadvantage so i think that the tribalism and the divisiveness are a major challenge there now the other level is what will the uh, likud knesset members do there are liberals in the likud and here again i am unfortunately not optimistic first because uh, traditionally it hasn't been the men, as I said before, that has been fighting for women's uh, issues. And second, because some of the female Likud members feel, for example, that the biggest problem that uh, we, we face today in Israel is uh, fake complaints by uh, victims of uh, sexual offenses. And that's a, a female lawyer who is a, a Knesset member. Maybe she's going to even be a minister. She's What's her name? Tali Gottlieb. So, unfortunately, I'm not optimistic. I do hope that there'll be some sort of a long-term realignment, a shift in how the camps are organized politically in Israel. In my vision, there is room for uh, a party that is composed from people on all the religious spectrum, from the Haredi to the secular and the uh, Arab, that are committed to democratic values. And uh, they should align together about what 
you know, the core issues. I, I have a, a phrase that I like to use uh, that, is you know I use it in regard to sex segregation but it's relevant for uh, all the topics we've been, we've been talking about it goes equality is the Shabbat of democracy so just as you uh, violate Shabbat rules as a last resort only to save life you can compromise on equality but as a last resort what this government is going to do is to compromise on equality as a first resort easy fix for many uh, differences. And that's something that really worries me. So my final question is the hardest to answer. What can we do about it? What can Israeli women and hopefully also men who support women who are alarmed by the situation do? And since we have a lot of listeners abroad who care very deeply about what the face of the state of Israel is going to look like, is there anything that they can do about it? So I'm really grateful that you're asking what can we do because there is an assumption there that we can do and there are things to do. And many Israelis, unfortunately, are not there anymore. They feel um, disheartened and disempowered and silenced. And, you know, there's all this talk about foreign citizenship and I'll buy a farm in Italy or I'll immigrate to Crete or whatever it is. You know, I totally sympathize with those uh, uh, feelings. Or I'll sit at the beach in Tel Aviv and not think about it. Right, and not read the news and, and, and kind of shut down to our uh, daily routine. I feel like there is much to do and it's doable. So you don't have to be, you know, with plenty of time or a sophisticated degree in order to take uh, action. One of the things that uh, scare or deter uh, autocratic regimes is speech. And they try to uh, chill speech. We now have um, a minister of police that is going to rule over the police of where it's a professional everyday uh, decisions. I foresee um, shutting of uh, you know violently of, of uh, demonstrations in the streets, maybe even in, in in technological means in social network. So the first thing to do, I think, against attempts to shut down speech is to speak. That's the, the thing that we must continue to do wherever it is, in the classroom, in the so- social uh, media, in the living room, uh, in the street. The other thing that really deters autocratic regimes is when people come together. Two people uh, working on a joint goal is something that makes these regimes very, very uh, uh, scared. And this is why they are against labor unions. This is why they're against uh, civil society, human rights organizations. And people don't understand that even three of them working together can make a lot of noise and a lot of change. I do see those budding uh, initiatives among parents about education and in other fields, which make me very happy. But this has to become a, a kind of a, a habit of anybody, right or left, who is uh, concerned about the future of uh, Israeli democracy, the future of Israel has is, is been able to see itself as one. And do you have a message for people overseas, as I said, who care very much about uh, the face of Israel and don't want to see it transforming and want to, you know, offer some sort of support to fighting activists on the ground like you, what's your message to them? 
I get why they're tired, just like I am tired, and many uh, uh, Israelis from within are tired, and I get the kind of disheartening feeling of um, you don't, not you, but the state of Israel, don't recognize me, a reformer, or conservative Jew, as Jewish. You don't let me pray. You may not let my grandchild immigrate as they're trying to now, even the law of return, they're trying to uh, minimize it. I, I want to emphasize that half of the Israeli public shares the, 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 the values of uh, Judaism that is not xenophobic and uh, racist and, and sexist and that needs these partnerships, this collaboration with people from the outside. It could be, of course, with uh, financial contribution to uh, the New Israel Fund, to many other uh, NGOs that work to strengthen Israeli democracy. Mainly, I feel like it's about following up on what's happening in Israel, talking about Israel, talking about us, and, and not seeing Israel uh, through the uh, shallow uh, uh, picture of its leaders that you know many, many people do not uh, identify with. Dr. Yofi Tirosh, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Thank you, Alison. It was great. And that wraps things up for Haaretz Weekly. Many thanks to my guest, Professor Yofi Tirosh, and to my producer and editor, Shani Aviram. Until next week, Shalom from Tel Aviv. Music